Struggling with caregivers' responsibility and feeling overwhelmed by the emotional toll, my guest, Juliet Watt, shares her journey as a caregiver, her experiences with compassion fatigue, and offers valuable insight on seeking support and prioritizing self-care. This is the Executor Health Podcast, the show for people who want the sense of security knowing all their affairs are in order. Avoid the stress and anxiety of what could happen to your estate, to your assets, and to your family when you're no longer here. Now here's your host, David Eady. My guest today is Juliet Watt. She's been a ATP, ATP airline pilot. She's been a master flight instructor, a Playboy bunny, a soap opera writer for ABC television. She's won two uh, Writers Guild Awards and has been nominated for a Daytime Emmy. You think that was enough? No, she's been an advocate for animal rights for almost a decade. She found time to go on the stage for at uh, TEDx Fargo. And then she decided, I'm going to be, become a best-selling author. So she wrote the book In Between the Magic, My Life from the Playboy Club to Beirut and Beyond. But her current mission is to help people who are struggling with the symptoms of compassion fatigue. She's helping, coach, helping to coach emotional and physical burden by creating uh, caring for others in distress, who have been neglecting themselves by not creating the true life of their dreams. Juliet, thank you for yes. taking the time to have this conversation. Thank to say you. you've had an interesting life, that I'm um, um, I'm saying I'm that's pretty short. I'm selling you short there. You've you've had an amazing life. Maybe you just want to talk a little bit about I, you're my first Playboy bunny I've ever spoken to. I've only seen you in oh, magazines. Please. I've never actually talked spoken to one. So as a right. casino play uh, bunny at the Playboy Club, what was that like in the in the, in the '60s in in London? It was uh, it was tremendous hard work. Uh, I think a lot of people don't realize how much work that is to stand or walk around for eight hours in three inch stilettos is painful to say the least. I mean, it's absolutely agonizing, and the work is very hard. I mean, if I was a casino. Uh, dealer. So you're standing for eight hours. You do get breaks in the middle, but it is, it's excruciating and your brain is going. Um, it's very, very hard work. And, and the glamour of it sort of dissipates because you're working so hard. And it's, um, it was a very interesting experience. Yeah. I'm grateful for it, but it was very interesting. Back then, you know, yeah. you, you said it was grateful, but how would some young women today wouldn't understand, you know, why would someone want to be a Playboy bunny? I mean, what, what, what were you grateful about for it, for the experience? Well, I was, I was grateful because I got the job first of all, and uh, I was basically underage. So my Whoa. mother did. Yeah, I was underage. My mother did some fancy stuff with my birth certificate and because we were about to be homeless. I mean, it was pretty chronic and, uh, I needed a job that paid decently. Now, back in those days, this was 1967. So right. they paid 35 pounds a week, which would have been approximately $70. Right. And uh, that was huge money. I mean, the best pay you could get as a secretary or an executive secretary was about $25 a week. So this was huge. And uh, that's what I needed to get us out of debt because my mother had basically put us in tremendous debt. And in those days, there was debtor's prison. So if you didn't pay your debts, they could actually take you to jail. 
And that would be, and I had to stop that happening. So I said, okay, what's the best paid job in London? And I saw it in the newspaper that they were doing, um, I don't even know what to call it. It's not really auditions they were doing. They called them auditions, but they weren't. You went to see if you were right for the job. And I just ran, you know, my mother fixed my birth certificate and off I went and I got the job. And I was just grateful because no one was going to prison. I mean, I know that doesn't sound very glamorous, but, you know, uh, those were hard days. I mean, there were no credit cards. You could not run out of money. If you did, you had no food. It was that simple. If you didn't have the money in the bank, you didn't have any money. And um, it's it was so, so different, David. I mean, it's 360 degrees from today. Mm-hmm. It was a very, very different time, yes. And, but even through that experience, I know you you met a lot of famous musicians and actors uh, during your time. Can you talk a little bit about the friendships? And I, I, I think that, did it leave some sort of a lasting impact on you and, and uh, sort of pave the way for your life? Well, yes. Um, I didn't, one that I met, through Playboy, who was a dear friend for many, many years, and was Sammy Davis Jr. And he uh, he had a great impact on me because we became friends he, just as friends. And um, thankfully, because I wasn't his type at all, thank God. But, you know, <laughs> we had that. Right. Um, but he he was an extraordinary man. He was going through, as as you know, back in the 60s, America was, was very, very... Uh, the black movement and and all of the stuff that was going on here and the terrible discrimination that he himself was going through. And I didn't know, I didn't understand it because in England, they pretty much hid that from us. We had no idea. So he and I became good friends because he would tell me, he would educate me on all sorts of things that were going on in America. And, um, and I don't know, it was a very, it was a very symbiotic thing. I think he understood that I was going through great difficulties at home with my mother. And um, I became friends with him and his mom too, who was delightful. When I, when I moved to New York, I became great friends with his mom. I, of course, on the other side of the coin, I didn't meet him through the Playboy Club, but, but I was, uh, my first boyfriend was Cat Stevens. That was um, tremendously. Yeah. Wow. How, how did yeah. you and Cat Stevens uh, meet? We met through a friend. Um, we met through a friend of a friend, and we all happened to end up in the same apartment on the same day to go for tea. We were just hanging out together, and there he was playing guitar, and I thought I'd died and gone to heaven, basically, wow. because this was 60, 68, and it was, you know, it, you could meet people in those days very easily because, it, as I said, it was a different time. Nobody was frightened of being shot. Nobody was scared of being kidnapped. I mean, nobody was scared. In fact, so it was easy to meet famous people. And he was a friend of my friend's boyfriend. So we all sort of ended up together and um, he was extraordinary. It was right at the beginning of his career and um, probably one of the most talented people I've ever known. Uh, So that's how that happened. And uh, he educated me a lot too on just, you know, life. And, And I didn't understand it at the time. I didn't understand his confusion and his malaise basically as to he wasn't sure of what he was doing he did not like being famous you know and all of the above so those are a couple then of course there's you know my fight with frank sinatra which is legendary whoa 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 whoa. see i didn't know about that let's back that let's not move on we've got a lot of stuff to carry there uh, to to cover here please 
let's let's uh, what what's the the legendary fight that you have with old legendary in my own brain right um it's uh it, in london in the playboy club it was a casino right it was half half a casino and half a restaurant and half a discotheque it was all sorts of things rolled in one but there was a very very firm rule in england you could not drink alcohol in the casino area of the club it was absolutely forbidden if you were and there was a lot of undercover police officers walking around checking you know i mean we didn't know who they were but you were not allowed to drink alcohol you were not allowed to be served alcohol if it had been found out if the police had seen it they could close the club down they could just close the club down and I, whoever is the person dealing the game at the time the alcohol is served could be in some serious trouble. Uh, so could all the management. I mean, it's it was very bad. So Sinatra used to come in frequently when he was in London and he would always be accompanied by his boys. And, you know, they all look like the Blues Brothers. I mean, it was absolutely insane. <laughs> It was nighttime. Do we need sunglasses and fedora hats? I mean, really? So he would come in with these guys and they were huge people, huge men. And they would, you know, surround him. And uh, for some reason, he came this particular night. He came to my my table. I was dealing a uh, 21 blackjack at the time and uh, he ordered a bourbon. And I thought, no, well, no one will bring it to him. Somebody's going to come and whisper in his ear very politely. Nobody did. Along comes this cocktail bunny, as they were called, the ones who served drinks, um, and put the bourbon down on the table. So I lifted my hands off the table and I said, I'm very sorry. Uh, alcohol is forbidden. And I had my hands up, which meant I wasn't going to deal. So the table director said to me, deal the cards. I said, no, no, no. That has to go. And Sinatra used some bad language and told me to deal the cards with lots of bad language in the middle of it. Yes, okay, I, I, can't, yeah. I, I said, sir, I can't, I can't. And uh, he said it again with reinforcement of bad words. And the next thing I knew is I'd been taken off the table. Bourbon stayed right there. I'd been taken off and I was sent upstairs to the general manager. Well, I felt quite great. You see, I thought I'd saved playboy from being closed down so i'm in the elevator going up to the office thinking i'm pretty you know i'm something right yeah. i'm gonna go in there and mr ryan is gonna tell me i'm amazing and i'm wonderful and thank you very much and hefner will be told and anyway i go in there and he he looks at me and he says you're going to go at, back at what age were you at what age when you did you confront uh mr sinatra sorry 60 okay 16. so 16. Yeah. So you had those delusional thoughts as you're in the elevator going up of to Mr. Ryan. I had saved Playboy. Um, and so I go into Mr. Ryan and Mr. Ryan is looking particularly uh, dark and angry. And he said to me, Juliet, you will go back downstairs. You will apologize to Mr. Sinatra. And hopefully he will accept it. And I said, well, wait a second. He's got alcohol. He, and he just hand went up. Mr. Sinatra is the chairman. He's the boss. He can do whatever he likes. And I was horrified. So I was in big trouble. So I went back downstairs and I walk up to him. And I got to tell you, David, this is the most uncomfortable thing in the that I've ever done. I walked up to him and he, he just stared at me. And I said, um, Mr. Sinatra, I apologize. Um, I'm sorry. I'm very sorry. And he just stared at me. And he said, you know, for a broad a pretty broad, you're a mouthy one. 
and then said, get the F out of my sight. So I was then put back on the table. Mm, Crazy. The bourbon is still there on the table. And I'm like, okay, now I'm going to prison. Now, any minute now, there's going to be somebody comes up who's an undercover guy. And nobody did. Thanks God. And um, damned if he, every time he was in town, he looked for me and came and sat at my damn table, ordered his damn bourbon. (laughs) I went through that for quite a while for the entire time I was in the casino. Yeah. Flip it this way. He, he liked goofy broads and you were uh, the type that uh, he liked. And that's why he he searched you out. That's one way of looking at it, David. I mean, I was probably very young, the only person of that young age to actually stand up to him. I mean, he was, you know, he was the boss. He was the chairman. I mean, it was Sinatra for God's sakes. So that's the way of looking at it. What? Well, you, you, you've got a quality of being a mouthy broad. Okay. So, and that that's that stood out to him. That's how I would take it. I'm, I'm a half guy. Let's go with that. Yeah. Okay. But so with everything that's gone on in your life, part of your story mentions escaping your mother's influence when uh, you were in, in London. Uh, can you elaborate a little bit on that, on that part of your life? Yes. I had, I had a mother who was mentally ill. She, I believe, was bipolar. She had definite manic depression. She was also a tremendous narcissist. It was all about her. And unfortunately, you know, again, in those days, uh, there was nowhere to go for any kind of advice. I mean, you didn't even think you needed it. Your job was to take care of your family. And that's all I had. I just had my mother because my father died when I was 10. And I was left with someone who really didn't want me. But I was all she had. So she clung to me. I mean, she was literally clinging to me for 45 years. And uh, I sacrificed my sanity and my life and any aspirations I really had to take care of this woman who wasn't ill. She wasn't sick. She was perfectly healthy. But I, it it was like a ball and chain around my neck. Uh, Everything I did, she questioned. She hated all my friends. I mean, it was a very, very, very narcissistic behavior. And, and I had to get away. And the only way I could get away was to put uh, 6,000 miles between us. And even then, <laughs> even then she came to visit. But it was very, very difficult to get away because I felt I was becoming her. I felt I was having that same horrible, critical, un- she had this unpleasant way of just disliking everybody and embarrassing you at the same time. And I, I knew as young as I was, you know, I had to just get away from it. Well, so does that makes sense. Yeah, it does. So which brings me to my next question. All these adventures that you've had in your life and we didn't even touch on you uh, running, um, you know, running uh, ammunition for political assassins uh, during the Civil War in Beirut, which is but you know what? Before we got, I get to that question, take me down that road. How we end up in Beirut doing that? Uh, well, finally, um, the debts caught up with mother. The bailiffs came to the door at nine o'clock in a winter night and kicked us out onto the street. So uh, we had nowhere to go. We had the car that they didn't see parked around the corner and cut a very long in-between story short. My mother decided, because my father was Turkish, and my mother decided we would go and live in Turkey. So we got in this car, which was a horrendous journey. Um, it's in the book. I mean, it was just a nightmare. 
we get to Turkey and from Turkey, um, I got myself out again. I just wanted to get away from her and nothing was going on in Turkey. I just got very, very sick with uh, yellow jaundice. And um, a friend of mine there said, why don't you go to Beirut? It's fabulous. It's, and I did know a couple of girls that had gone there from London. So I got on a plane and off I went. And I'm cutting a lot of stuff out here, David, for time's okay. sake, because there's lots of things that made this happen. So I um, I get to Beirut and um, I'm having a wonderful time. I'm singing in local clubs because that's what I became, a cabaret singer. And that was my job. And um, and all of a sudden, if you know a little bit about the history, it's and it's very interesting because what's going on in Israel right now is the sort of the end of the it's the end of the story that began long time ago right. we had in beirut a lot of palestinian i can only call them ghettos it's where the palestinians had been put as guests of lebanon and they were living in very squalid situations really bad yasser arafat who was the leader of the palestinian liberation army yeah. uh, at that time decided that because lebanon borders israel he thought it'd be a jolly good idea to shoot some mortars over the border at Israel because he wanted his country back, basically. And so they started that. And um, the Israelis came, landed, took out about a thousand Palestinians. And so it began. And uh, there was, of course, the insurrection of the Muslims against the Christians. And, and it was beyond awful. And I was there. So before this really became bad, there was that in-between period of, oh, everything's fine. The Israelis have gone, we're all good. And my friend, who I used to go to to get my, I had a motorcycle. So I used to get my motorcycle repaired. And he said to me, listen, you want to make some extra cash? And I, always. We never had any money, but we managed to be able to kind of survive. I don't know how. And he said, uh, up in the hills of Zahle, which is a town, he said there's a group of uh, young men who are doing good deeds and uh, they need some help getting ammunition. And he said, I can fill the tanks of your motorcycle uh, with bullets and just run it up there and you'll get, uh, you know, money. Um, and I did that for like five months Whoa. because, yeah, uh, I used to have to pass three border guard checkpoints and I used to bring them chocolate, Hershey, Hershey's chocolate. Right. And that chocolate saved me. And I also, this is, this is actually another story that's kind of long. I also had acquired a Palestinian driving license. As you know, there was no Palestine, but I had a Palestinian driving license signed by Yasser Arafat. Well, that saved my life on, I mean, literally, David, saved my life on a couple of occasions. So that's what I did. I, I did it for the, you know, catch. And uh, I made great friends with all these assassins. They were political assassins. And that's what they did. They went out and uh, basically took out political rivals that they thought were no good. And they wore red berets and they wore all their bullets around. Very much like Che Guevara. <laughs> that right. kind of a look, you know, dreadfully handsome. All of them gorgeous. So how do we end up on the on the stage of a TEDx talking about compassion fatigue. Why did you feel it was uh, important to talk about, to share your message with the world? After all these twists and turns, literally on motorcycles, delivering ammunition, do we end up on a TEDx uh, stage?
I needed a bit of a rest, you know? Did you? <laughs> uh, yeah, okay, makes sense, makes sense. I, uh, I became, um, so living in the States, um, I became a speaker and, and um, I was speaking on different, different topics. And um, the person who was booking me, she called me, she was the Denver Speakers Bureau, a very nice lady. She called me and she said, do you know anything about compassion fatigue? And I said, no, you know, I'm being a bit of a wise guy. I said, what is that when you don't feel like being nice anymore? I mean, she said, no, 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 it's, it's. Juliet, that sounded a, sound a little Frank Sinatra like, I see that <laughs> little attitude. See, that's that mouthy bride he was talking about. See, okay, go on, I'm sorry. <laughs> Didn't mean to interrupt, oh, but that sounded yeah. like Frank Sinatra. Okay, just a wise guy. You know, it was it, a little it, bit it, of New York. It, you know what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. That's why he liked so, you. But anyway, I digress. You know, that's a good point. Too bad we can't ask him, huh? They're all dead. All these cool people are dead. It's annoying, isn't it? Um. Yes. But because I noticed, just as an aside, I noticed your podcast. You you talk a lot about death and everything. My favorite topic, by the way just wanted you to know fascinated by it i'm really fascinated by it but anyway all right you're setting the table for your next your next uh appearance on the show but continue on wise guy go ahead um so uh anyway um i started doing research and the research led me to a gentleman dr figley um who was in tulane university down in in louisiana and um basically to, to quote it correctly, it is secondary vicarious stress disorder, not PTSD, which is a different thing, but similar. This is secondary. So it is the actual quote of it is the emotional and physical burden caring for others in distress. So let's say you are looking after your mom who's beginning dementia, can't put her in a nursing home because don't want to, can't afford it, whatever the reasons may be. Now, her life depends on you. Your life is done as far as any anything you wanted to do. You have, if you have a job, you have to now do your job, come home, take care of your mother. It becomes your entire world. It takes you over completely. And that is a great toll on us. We are not built for that kind of stress. Maybe you have to administer drugs. Maybe you have to administer injections. You're not a doctor. You don't know how to do it, but you have to do it. Her life is in your hands. So what happens to you physically? You get the fatigue of the compassion you are giving and giving and giving to a point where you've got nothing left to give, let alone taking care of yourself, because then your own self starts to disappear and then the fatigue sets in the irritation the frustration the anger why do i have to do this and that's just caring for someone it can be like mine my mother wasn't sick but my mother was attached to me so all my life was is mom okay what do i need to do and she would call me up in in dire straits about something and she took over my life and this is happening all over. I mean, I think when I did the TED talk in 2018, I did some research and there's over 110 million people caring for somebody in their own home. Um, and and it's 
it's an extraordinary thing because no one talks about this. It's our duty. Who, who said it was our duty? Yes, okay, your parent becomes ill. What do you do? Well, it's very difficult. If you don't have the, the means and the wherewithal, yes, they're at home. But you need to take care of yourself as well. And a lot of people forget and don't do that. And because they don't want to be selfish. And selfish is not a bad word. When you when you're asked to do this research and you started to do it, did it start to check off boxes of dealing with your mom? Because I remember oh. parts of your book where she wouldn't even go to the grocery store, if I remember correctly. Oh, insanity. Um, yeah, I mean, Dr. Figley was talking and I said, a lot of it, all the stuff he was talking to me about, you know, which I've just said to you. And I said, wait a second, this sounds awfully familiar. Now, primarily, compassion fatigue is really subject to nurses and, EM, you know, uh, EMS workers, firefighters, the people that are actually, their job is to take care of people. They get it. Like during COVID, there wasn't a nurse in this country that wasn't absolutely crushed by compassion fatigue, going into blackout, burnout, horrible. But everything he said, and I said, but wait a second, I'm not a nurse. I'm not a fire. I'm not a, any of those things, but it's affecting me. And I thought, wow, if this is affecting me and I'm just an ordinary person, how many other people is it affecting? How many other people in the world are at home looking after somebody and trying to have their family, have their job? I mean, how do you do that? You know, maybe whoever it is isn't in your home with you and you're back and forwards, back and forwards all the time. And your family's starting to get pissed off with you because you're not spending any time with the kids and it snowballs. Mm -hmm. And I suddenly thought, let's do some more research. And I did. And that's when I found out about the 108 million people taking care of somebody. And uh, I put together the talk. What is compassion fatigue? What is it? And do you have it? And... Well, well, I I think that it it's pretty common because you you'll see a lot of um, uh, it probably actually it could have been a case in my my parents' case um, like we had to move my dad out because um, he had dementia but my mom was still at home and you know I made the um, one of my sisters was decided that she would you know told mom you know sell the house and and you'll come live with us. And I remember bringing that up to my mom, driving her one day, go get groceries. And she started to cry and it broke my heart. I couldn't bring it up. She says, I don't want to leave my house, but I can see where it would have become a, an issue of her leaving her friends and moving to another city to be with my sister and live in, in her world and have her look after it. And, and I think it's, it's common that a lot of um, what they also call the sandwich generation where a lot of families are being, um, you know, children are going to be put in in the situation that uh, I'm going to be looking after mom. I still got my kids or the family and I'm not trained to do all of these, do all of these things. And and it's it has to be a drag on a drag on you. Oh, I can... you're, also, you're not mentally you're not mentally equipped. You didn't decide when you came out of college. All right. I'm going to be a caregiver. You did not decide that. So we don't have, I mean, my mother, to talk about the grocery thing. So I'm living in America. I'm seven hours time difference. I used to, every Sunday, no matter where I was, it doesn't matter what I was doing because that was irrelevant to her, okay? I would have to call her and do her shopping 
online to a store two or three blocks away from where she lived and they would deliver. So I'm calling from America to the store two blocks away from her, ordering her groceries to have them delivered. Not once did she ever say, is it okay? Am I disturbing you? Do you have something? I mean, I've been sitting on the floor of nightclubs backstage trying to get this done during a rehearsal or something. I mean, it's, you know, my therapist says she's one, she's amazed I'm not dead and she's amazed I'm sane. But it's, it's, I thought it never occurred to me not to do it, David. Never occurred to me. Well, you, it, it, depending on the relationship or how you view your, your parents, it's you you look at it as well they looked after me and this is what i need to do to look after them um but it can go the either way if there's something mentally wrong with the parent and they'll just throw everything on you um like i said my my dad had to be moved out of the house because he became a danger not only to himself but to my mom i had to trick him into going into the hospital on father's day which, which still stays with me to this day of what I had to do, but he was angry with me. Um, after that, up until well, until he was uh, the day I was with him until he was dying, he kind of came to peace with it. But you know, um, takes yeah. it, it's hard. It's hard on uh, the kids and the, the the caregiver because you don't know what to do. You're not trained for this, but you're only saying, yeah. "Well, this is the actual should be the evolution of life or the circle oh. of life that you." you know, your parents, and then you look after them, and then they're going to be gone, and you hopefully your kids will look after them. But it it's till they get to the end, it can be very, it can be very taxing. I, and and I, I know this sounds absolutely dreadful. But honestly, I didn't feel that I didn't feel because she took care of me, I had to take care of her that that, that was the deal in having a baby. When you have a baby, that's your choice. You take care of that child for X number of years, but it's not their duty to turn around and take care of you. That's not in the manual. Okay. That's not the deal. I feel, you know, and, and, and we, uh, it's, it's something I've had numerous discussions about because I don't think it's a bad thing. I really, really don't. What is this law, this rule, this duty you have imposed? We have imposed upon ourselves because it's our parents. We have to take care of them. Um, Okay, but but wouldn't then you're in the position where you have no choice, right? But then wouldn't that go back to the relationship that you had as a child? Yes. That um, from the beginning, that your mom, yes. my your your mom and your dad were nurturing. You knew they were always there, um, and yes, you you were their kids. But it's yes. the relationship that you have with them that you you can't fathom not looking after them for what they did um, and that's I'm a choice yes absolutely david you're absolutely right i mean that's a choice one makes and if if you go you know what i want to do this i'm choosing to do this that's very different than it being imposed upon you like my mother did to me i had no choice there she was around my neck you know what i'm saying when you, but so, when you say but when you say she had you had no choice why did you why did you feel that you needed to do the groceries you know every every sunday even though that you know you're seven hours away yeah. why, why did you she, feel like you that you need to do that as, as a grown was, woman now i was terrified of her i was scared to death of her i was scared to death of upsetting her 
And this is a very deep, this goes right into the narcissism of it all. You know, um, everything, she would be really, really nice. Then she would be really, really awful. Uh, she did um, some really awful things to me. Was, she took away things I loved, like my animals. You know, she had my horse put down by no reason, but because I loved that horse. So it was something that made me very happy and that I loved very much. And she knew that that love didn't go to her. I was a good kid. I mean, I was not a bad kid at all. I mean, I could have been a lot worse, but but this constant need to be attached to me was stifling. I was choking. Um, so the choice part, yes, I think it's a generational thing. We There was that sense of duty it's my mother. I, I have to do this. And I never thought about choosing, you know, not until I started studying for this TED talk. And I suddenly realized, wow, I did have a choice, but I was in that generation where you were obedient. You, your parents, your parents, you looked up to, you didn't talk back. I mean, you know that, right? Yeah. You didn't answer, you didn't talk back to your parents. You didn't say why ever. So it's generational, I think. I know you talk about in the book about her final days and, and when you you found out that she was sick. Can you talk a little bit about that? And, and at that time when she, you know, um, when you knew that she was sick or you knew that she was coming to the end, where, were, where was your relationship people. then? Sorry? I, that's, I didn't, uh, her death does not occur in the book not the death but i mean when you knew that she was going to pass away what right. where was your relationship at that time awful terrible um oh you're talking about in a, a, a she passed away in 2014 right and um it was terrible it was she would not ever ever make peace she would never she would never say listen you know let's let's talk about this let's make peace her mental condition had gone into the realms of dementia where all she did was scream all day long how much she hated me she um in london they do take care of older folk and she was in a very nice nursing home there yes i did not go to visit and i was not there when she died and i don't feel guilty and um i just when i heard she'd passed i felt this sense of relief for her mainly because I knew now she wasn't angry anymore you know she was angry 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 she blamed my father for dying I mean how do you do that right, right. it was constantly everything being done to her not for her when you have that belief that is so ingrained in you you can't move forward if everything's being done to you you're stuck and um, I, unfortunately, that's all she would scream in the nursing home. And the nurses would, you know, they wouldn't know what to do. And finally, the, the doctor actually called me himself from London. And he said, I'm really sorry. All your mother is doing is screaming how much she hates you. So I really, I. I, I and when you heard that, how did you feel? Nothing. So Nothing. When, you, when you said that you were happy that she was at peace, she was gone. Did you also feel a sense of uh, freedom? That you I did. I did initially. <laughs> right. Until about a year later, I started to get these terrible 
anxiety attacks, panic attacks, this incredible depression landed on me because what I was feeling was all the things I had not been able or allowed to feel from childhood to when she died. It just, it was like, yes, freedom, but the door opened and everything came tumbling in. My animals that she took away from me, the grief, the immense grief that I had never shown, I'd never shed a tear. Even for my father dying, I'd never cried. I'd been very stoic because even then I'd realized I got to keep this crazy family together of these women that are falling apart. I was 10. So I'd never expressed any emotion and it just hit me. And uh, I've been told I have chronic PTSD from it, that I have trauma. I've been through a lot of trauma. I mean, and I went, how? And it's been explained to me and I've talked to other people, you know, in my coaching and everything, I've realized, wow, trauma doesn't necessarily have to be being abused or being in a war or being a soldier. It can be a lifetime of mental, just crushing, not allowed to express anything, you know, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. But I think not my doctor, but just, it's it the it started back from I mean you did a lot of growing up and having to do what you did to keep the family afloat based on who your mom was and I mean you being at age sixteen um, serving uh, you know uh, dealing uh, blackjack to to Frank Sinatra that's not a normal teenage life because you're only doing that so the family doesn't end up on on the streets so yes sir yes. you really you didn't. You have, I, I don't know, um, just based on our conversation, what I've read, you you just, you didn't have a normal childhood. It, it's yeah. just like you, it, you've raced from age 10 to 27 in, in a short period of time that you had to be out doing things that, that they shouldn't be doing. Uh, yes. But I made it work, yeah. you know, Absolutely. And, and I made it work because I, at the back of my mind, I knew I did not want to be my mother when I was older, you know, and, and that was my main thing. I will not be like her. I will not be that so self-absorbed. So what I turned into a student of life, I turned into, I want to learn, I want to understand, and I try to understand other people, you know, and um, coaching has been extraordinary because so many people are going through this. Yeah. And it's, it's especially today, it's very hard today uh, with social media and, and it's just mind blowing how it's different. And I feel for everybody and I'm glad because my mother didn't have empathy. And that's one of the number one spotters of a narcissist that they have no empathy. And I have, I have got so much empathy, you know, animals in my life and, and other people in their struggles, I really feel for them. And thankfully, I did not turn out like her. When it comes to the compassion uh, fatigue, and how it can affect different people in different ways. Now, depending on their personal circumstance or background, what should people look for? What, you know, how, how can they combat and cope with it? Wow, that was a lot to unpack in this episode. So in part two of my conversation with Juliet Watt, we go even deeper into the subject of compassion fatigue, the signs, symptoms, how can individuals prioritize their own self-care and well-being while still fulfilling their caregiving responsibilities, and a whole lot more. Join me and Juliet as we continue our conversation. 
Hope you enjoyed the episode. Can you do me a favor? Show some love for the podcast by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Can you share it with your community? Subscribe or follow on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want more information, free resources, or just want to get in touch, go to davideady.com. Until next time, thanks for listening. 